Welcome everyone to case study number two. Today we are going to be going over a 68-year-old male patient. So we'll give you a little bit of background, a little bit of assessment, some details along the way, and ask you some critical thinking questions, see if you could figure out what's going on and how to intervene. Yeah, and th these case studies are for anybody that's curious to develop a more critical thinking skill as far as working in the hospital in general. So this is for any nurses that want to listen. And for nursing students, case studies is a big thing that I remember in nursing school. So this will give you the idea to start thinking about your patients and start putting things together. Mm -hmm. And speaking of which, even like just contacting nurses for the past couple of days, because one of my family members were hospitalized, talking to them, they don't, they can't put the whole care together sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, even small things like, hey, GI put NPO order in. I'm like, okay, well, what else is happening? They're not sure. Then I call somebody else. Okay, there's a CT scan order, mm -hmm. NPO order. I'm like, did you do fecal cold blood? Oh, I, I didn't think about it. Well, the GI doctor won't do it either if it's not nurse driven or maybe think and ask. Mm -hmm. So these case studies are very beneficial for, you know, we're going to be going over different disease processes and start thinking, hey, this is a CHF patient. This is a stroke patient. What you should be thinking about when you have these kind of cases. Yeah. All right, y'all, and then we'll start with, with the background for you guys and um, see if you guys could, could keep up here. So the background. This case study presents a 60-year-old right-handed African-American man named Jeffrey Swanson. He has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and a history of smoking one pack per day for the last 20 years. He has been prescribed a tenolol for his hypertension and simvastatin for his hyperlipidemia. But he has a history of not always taking his medications. Red flag right there. His father had a history of hypertension and passed away from cancer 10 years ago. His mother has a history of diabetes and is still alive. Jeffrey was gardening with his wife on a relaxing Sunday afternoon. Out of nowhere, Jeffrey fell to the ground. When his wife rushed to his side and asked how he was doing, he answered with a garbled and incoherent speech. It was then that his wife noticed his face was drooping on the right side. His, his wife immediately called 911 and the paramedics arrived within six minutes. Upon initial assessment, the paramedics reported that Jeffrey appeared to be experiencing a stroke as he presented with right-sided facial droop and weakness and numbness on the right side of his body. Fortunately, Jeffrey lived nearby a stroke center, so he was transported to St. John's Regional Medical Center within 17 minutes of paramedics arriving to his home. So right off the bat, you're thinking some kind of a, a stroke hemorrhagic stroke, ischemic stroke, uh, maybe an, an MI um, that maybe leads to a stroke. Any Anytime you have some kind of, kind of um, maybe like unilateral or any kind of paralysis or movement issues, facial issues, speaking issues, you, you, could, you, could think, you could think stroke easily. But, you know, when he collapsed over, he could have had, had an MI and then that could have led to a stroke. Maybe he had an MI and then he hit his head, which then led to a stroke. So there's a three things that could be that could be going on. So day one, so now they brought him to the hospital. What's going on? So initial management. Upon arrival to the ED, the healthcare team was ready to work together to diagnose Jeffrey. He was placed in the bed with the head of bed elevated to 30 degrees to decrease intracranial pressure and reduce any risk for aspiration. Jeffrey's wife remained at his bedside and provided the care team with his brief medical history, which was previously mentioned which consists of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and smoking one pack per day for the last 20 years. He had no recent head trauma, never had a stroke, no prior surgeries, and no use of anticoagulation medications. So right now as a nurse, 
what are we thinking? What kind of questions would we ask Jeffrey or his wife? One thing that comes to mind right away is when did you first experience these, these symptoms? So in this case study, we already know that within 17 minutes, paramedics came, brought him to the hospital. So we know that time is brain because if you have a stroke, every single second counts, even getting a CT scan done within the 20 minutes, which is the gold standard in most hospitals. Mm -hmm. So that's the first question we'd be asking. Also, the initial exam is that what's the patient's neurological status? Because we always need to get a baseline to see if anything changes. So is he alert and oriented times two to three? And then you could go more in depth and potentially even do a neuro exam. So that's like the NIH stroke scale, which is 15 items that test the neurological effects uh, to put to evaluate for the effects of a cerebral acute cerebral infarction. And that uh, checks on the levels of consciousness, language, visual field loss, and extraocular movement, motor strength, ataxia, dysarthria, and sensory loss. Mm -hmm. And normally in the hospitals, there's always a nice pamphlet that comes with checking NIH. So even though I always struggled or thought maybe I have to memorize all these things, you do, but also it comes with a nice blanket or packet so you know what to assess mm. on your patient <clears throat> yeah once once they present you're basically almost going to redo what the paramedics did or whatever they did the ambulance like Matt said you can do the nihs skill you're going to kind of reevaluate if the same symptoms are going on that were reported by by the paramedics or or by the family because sometimes this happens and the patient presents with like severe symptoms but then they get to the hospital and somehow they like improve Sometimes they get a TIA, which is like a transient ischemic attack, where it's like a, it's like you call it like a like a mini stroke, but the symptoms subside, and you don't have to do like as as aggressive work. You might want to hold off on certain things, but like Matt said, the standard CT scan has to be done with any kind of head trauma, any kind of head issues. You you have to get that done. So just check their movement, check their eyesight, see if everything's equal. Uh, whatever you do to the left side of the body, do to the right to make sure there's any kind of differences. Have them smile, just like that typical neural neural assessment that, that you would give that you learned in, in school or are currently doing at bedside. Yes. So the assessment. Upon first impression, Nurse Laura recognized that Jeffrey was calm but looked apprehensive. When asked of his state to state his name and date of birth, his speech sounded garbled and at times was very slow, but he could still be understood. He could not recall the month he was born in, but he was alert and oriented to person, time, and situation. When asked to stay where he was, he could not recall the word hospital. He simply pointed around the room while repeating here. Further assessment revealed that his pupils were equal and reactive to light, that he presented with right-sided facial paralysis. Jeffrey was able to follow commands when asked to move his extremities. He could not lift his right arm and leg. He also reported that he could not feel the nurse touch his right arm, leg, Nurse Laura gathered initial vital signs, and these are as follows. The BP was 176 over 82, heart rate was 93, respiratory rate was 20, temp was 99.4, O2 set was 92% on room air, and he had a headache with a pain of 3 out of 10. Mm -hmm. So what do you think Jeffrey's differential diagnosis could be? So we know that some neurological is going on, so we're going to think brain. The more drastic stuff you could think of, maybe it would be a brain tumor, uh, but this might be a little bit more out of the box, but still it's good to rule out. And that's going to most likely show on, on a CT. You're most likely thinking a stroke, but now it's like, is it an ischemic stroke or is it a hemorrhagic stroke? Because the treatment and intervention for both of those are going to be a, a little bit different. Another one, that could, another one that could be presenting is hypoglycemia. A lot of times hypoglycemia can mask 
these symptoms of, of a stroke. People get disoriented. They don't know what's going on. They kind of get delusional, delirious when their sugar is low. So that could also be be going on. Um, so then, for regardless of what the diagnosis is, what are some interventions you could be doing? Like a broad range of things that you could be doing to kind of narrow down what's actually going on. Like I mentioned before, you want to do the CT. Bedside glucose is going to be your first step with any kind of kind of admission. NIHS stroke scare, you're going to mostly be doing that every 15 minutes to every 30 minutes, uh, depending on your hospital protocol. You're going to be checking vitals frequently, most likely every 15 minutes as well. You're going to get an EKG. You're going to just put him on some O2. Even though he's setting fairly well, 92 is a little bit on the lower side, but why not just give him the extra O2 just in case? We know that there's something neurologically going on, so let's try to optimize every single thing that we can. We're going to put him on a bed rest and had a bed above 30 degrees, like mentioned before in the, in the assessment, and just f- labs, frequent reassessments, just making sure that whatever is, is going on right there is not is not getting worse. You also may want to administer some medications. His blood pressure was borderline. It's 176 systolics, which may seem a little bit high, but the thing is, is you're not sure what kind of stroke it is. You're not sure if it's ischemic or if it's, or if it's uh, hemorrhagic. If it's ischemic, we're we're a little bit okay on him being a little bit higher because it's almost like permissive hypertension where if it is ischemic, we don't mind a high blood pressure just to kind of push that blood flow a little bit a little bit harder to perfuse, to perfuse and get past that, that blockage. But if it's hemorrhagic, it could also be an issue, but usually with hemorrhagic strokes, uh, we usually maintain it like with no higher than like 180, 185 based on your hospital protocol. So blood pressure wise, I wouldn't really mess with it too much unless you for sure know that it's that it's a hemorrhagic stroke. But right now, we're still not sure. We're still trying to rule out all the all the other things. And also, we mentioned EKG. So that's just, just in case because you can be having a stroke, but you could also have be having a heart attack as well at the same time. Yeah, and just looking at these vitals, he is not a sepsis risk, so we mm-hmm. don't have to do that. Yeah, yeah no sepsis protocol. <laughs> right, because I looked at the heart rate, man, as soon as the temp is like 101.1, we got to do a sepsis mm-hmm. assessment. All right, so let's see what the doctor's orders are now. So we're going to put them on two liters, O2, to keep the oxygen above 93. We're going to administer a 500 ml cc bolus of normal saline. We're going to check vital signs Q2 for the first eight hours. And I feel like sometimes it's Q1, especially after giving TPA. So this might vary in, on your hospital protocol. We're going to draw some labs. We're going to check a CBC, INR, PTINR, PTT, and a troponin. We're going to get a 12-lead EKG, get a chest x-ray. We're going to do a CT, again, gold standard for these cases. We're going to do a glucose check. And we're going to obtain a patient's weight. You also have to perform an NIH stroke scale within the first assessment and then Q2 for the first 24 hours and then Q12 till discharge. And then also we have to notify pharmacy for a potential TPA preparation. And that's also going to vary depending on how your hospital does that per protocol. Yeah, a lot of times we do a lot of things at once just in case we need something. Because if we could do, if we take multiple steps, to get things prepared, like the TPA, like Matt said, maybe we're not gonna need TPA, but let's just do it just in case, because if we do need it, now we already have it and it's ready to go instead of delaying care for, for half an hour, because with, with brain, brain is time. The more time you waste putting off treatment or longer it takes to do certain things, the more brain damage you're going to have. Yeah, I guess the only order I would question from the doctor, because this is a case study I pulled from the web, right, that we put together, is a 500cc fluid bolus. Is that really necessary? Maybe there's more in the clinical picture that we're seeing. Maybe he has amber urine. Maybe he hasn't peed. He's dehydrated based on like the assessment, like his mucous membrane looks. But his BP is 176 over 82. We're not afraid of hypotension. So that bolus is kind of like, 
it would be my first priority essentially. Yeah. Just, just in case bullets. Yeah. So now we have some nursing action. So we have Nurse Laura. So Nurse Laura started an 18 gauge IV in Jeffrey's left AC and started him on 500 mLs of normal saline. A blood sample was collected and quickly sent to the lab. Nurse Laura called the emergency department tech to obtain a 12 lead EKG. So great, labs were sent, both started, EKG is done. Now the labs are back and labs are as follows. WBCs are 7.3, RBC is 4.6, platelets are at 200, so 200,000 usually, or um, 10 to the 9th. So it depends on how, how you look at your, your, your lab values on your computer. These numbers might be different, but in this case, the 200 of platelets is, is in within normal range. LDL is 179, which is a little bit elevated. HDL is 43, PT is 12, PTT is 29, INR is 1.2, troponin less than 0.01, glucose is 94, and EKG and chest X-ray results are also in. The EKG results and monitor revealed Jeffrey was a normal sinus rhythm, chest X-ray was negative for pulmonary or cardiac pathology. CT scan and NIHS results are as follows. The NIHS stroke scale was completed and demonstrated that Jeffrey had a significant neurological deficits with a score of 13. The higher the score, the worse the symptoms are or presentation. Within 20 minutes of arrival to the hospital, Jeffrey had a CT scan completed. Within 40 minutes of arrival to the hospital, the radiologist notified the ED physician that the CT scan was negative for any active bleed, ruling out hemorrhagic stroke. So that's that's all that's that's a lot of information, and this is literally all the stuff that comes at you at once. When somebody gets sent in with head trauma or any kind of suspicion of stroke, literally all this happens within like the first half an hour. There's so much going on. You're compiling so much data. Everything's stat, CT is stat, labs are stat, EKG is stat, orders are stat. Everything you're doing is, is quick. Like I mentioned before, time is brain. So every minute counts. So the whole care team is going to be working efficiently, effectively, and quickly to do as much as they, they can, rule out everything as they can, and just take a lot of action at once. So if you might be wondering what is a diagnosis since we ruled out the hemorrhagic stroke, CT basically was positive for the ischemic stroke. And this is the plan. So we're going to continue seeing the next progression. So doctor consulted and diagnosed Jeffrey with a thrombo, thrombotic ischemic stroke and determined that the plan would include the, uh, administering TPA. Since Jeffrey's CT scan was negative for a bleed and since he met all the inclusion criteria, he was a candidate for TPA. And later on in the podcast, we'll talk about the exclusion criteria for TPA. And as you know, most places you, you have to administer TPA within three to 4.5 hours. So he's within that time frame. CT scan was negative for bleeding. The patient is at least 18 years older. The doctor diagnosed him with ischemic stroke and the patient still has neurological deficits. So therefore, that is a criteria to administer TPA. For example, he had symptoms and they went, went away. Just like Pete said, it could be just a TIA, transient ischemic stroke, and we wouldn't be administering TPA for that. Since the neuro, uh, neurologist has recommended IV TPA, the physician went into Jeffrey's room, discussed what they found with his wife. Nurse Laura answered and addressed any questions and concerns. So administration. So... Jeffrey and his wife decided to proceed with the TPA therapy as ordered. Nurse Laura initiated the hospital's TPA protocol. A bolus of 6.73 milligrams of TPA was administered for one minute, followed by an infusion of 60.59 over the course of one hour. 
and the patient went 74.8 kilograms. So just kind of give you guys a background of the TPA protocol, usually administering 0.9 milligrams per kg with a max dose of 90 milligrams, the most you can give. So usually the initial, just like he got a bolus of 6.73, you give a 10% bolus over the first one to two minutes, and then the rest is administered over 60 minutes. Uh, Jeffrey was transferred to the ICU for closer observation. Jeffrey still appeared to be displaying neurological deficits and his right side of paralysis has not improved. His vital signs were assessed and noted as follows. BP is 149 over 79. Heart rate is 90. Respiratory rate is 18. Temperature is 98.9. And O2 set is 97% on 2 liters with a pain of 2 out of 10. And the reason why Jeffrey got sent to the ICU any single time we have a patient that gets TPA, they have to be sent to the ICU for a close observation because you're doing literally Q15 assessments and neurological checks because you just administered TPA. He is at risk of bleeding out. And in some hospitals, after six hours, uh, the TPA protocol is over where you don't have to assess them every 15. I think it's like every 30 or hour. Mm. So sometimes we transfer those patients out of the ICU depending on how busy the unit is. Yeah. And of course, him getting TPA, you don't want to give him any other kind of anticoagulation. You don't want to give him any kind of aspirins, heparins, any kind of warfarin, nothing, because TPA is really, really strong. That's why why we want to hold off on all those, because anything else could just increase like a little bleeding. That's why he's in, in the ICU, because he's just at a giant, giant risk for bleeding. And this is kind of the time where sometimes families might get a little bit discouraged or patients might get a little frustrated because when you administer medications, lipo expect the, the symptoms to decrease right away. But sometimes with TPA, it just takes a little, little bit of time. Your brain needs some time to recover. Medication needs some time time to work. Uh, the brain has to reperfuse and kind of get things going again. So this might be the, the time where you might not see a lot of change, but just reinforce the family that, hey, sometimes it's just takes time time to work. You want to just keep them in, in high hopes because if the family starts to get distressed, the patients are going to, to get distressed and you don't want them to affect the vital signs, especially because they're high risk for breathing, breeding, bleeding. So you don't want them getting frustrated, you don't want to get them angry. You don't want to do, do anything that will kind of disrupt that, that homeostasis. So just be, be reassuring. Don't lie to them and say, yeah, this is going to work tomorrow or, or day number three, usually this works. No, just, just say, hey, this takes a little bit of time to work. We're going to no more as each day progresses, but let's just let's just keep it going. He's not getting any worse, which is good. There's no need to to kind of get super upset because medication needs some time to work. So let's take it day by day. We'll see how it goes. And I'll be honest with you, I'll, I'll update you if anything changes and we're just gonna gonna move forward. It just it just takes time for a body, body to relax. And if he gets better, we're in in the right path. But if, if he doesn't, that is also an option. But remember, if he doesn't get any worse, that's also not the worst case scenario because he, he is still like your loved one. He's still the same person for, for like the most part and stuff like that. So just, just be reassuring. Don't don't lie to him. Don't get, their, don't get their hopes up, but be realistic, but also be a little bit hopeful in, in, in this case. You bring up a lot of good points because normally with these cases, a family member would be like, is he going to get better? Is he going to be able to move his leg again? Is he going to be able to move his arm? And... Again, like you said, you can't instill false hope, but you have to be honest with them that we don't know. Some some people are like, oh, well, in your experience, what does usually happen? And it's so hard to be like, to to assess that because we don't even know what part of the brain it's affecting. How does TPMO work? So again, just like you said, just be truthful, honest, and we have to just take it literally eye by, 
hour by hour to see how these patient symptoms improve. Yeah. So patient's been there for 24 hours. So you have day number two. So I'll give you a little bit of assessment of what's going on. So updates of day number two. So in the ICU, Jeffrey's neurostatus improved greatly. Nurse Jane noted that while he still garbled his speech and had right-sided facial droop, he was not able to recall information such as his birthday, and he could identify objects when asked. Jeffrey was able to move his right arm and leg off the bed, but he reported that he was still experiencing decreased sensation, right-sided weakness, and he demonstrated drift in both his extremities. So day two comes along, there's already some kind of progression. Something's already getting better. The nurse monitored Jeffrey's blood pressure and noted that it was higher than normal at 151 over 83. She realized this was an expected finding for a patient during a stroke, but systolic pressure should be maintained at less than 185 to lower the risk of hemorrhage. His vitals remained stable and his NIHS score decreased to an 8. Labs were drawn and were within normal limits with the exception of his LDL and HDL levels. His vital signs were noted as follows, BP 151 over 80, heart rate 92, Restore rate is 18, temperature is 98.8, O2 is 87 on room air, or sorry, 97% on room air, and pain is zero. So he's went down from a 13 on NIHS to an 8. He's not 100% back to his normal self, but it's things are getting better slowly. It's getting better slowly. This might be his new baseline, but still, when we talk to the family, you want to let them know he's getting better. You know, it's 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 progressing well. Let's keep taking it day by day, you know, just have a focus on, on the positives, not so much on the negatives because it's easier for us to get caught up on negatives. So just keep keep reassuring sure that things are going to be okay. Everyone's doing their job. Doctors are monitoring him. We're check, checking his vitals. We're checking his labs. We're on top of it. We're making sure that if anything were, were to change, we're going to be right back in it and we're going to try and fix it as best as we can. So we're moving forward where the doctor ordered a physical speech occupational therapy as well as a swallow test. So Jeffrey remained NPO since his arrival due to the risk associated with swallowing after a stroke. Nurse Jan performed a swallow eval test giving Jeffrey three ounces of water. On the first sip, Jeffrey coughed and subsequently did not pass. Nurse Jan kept him NPO until speech pathologist arrived to further evaluate Jeffrey. Ultimately, the speech pathologist determined that with caution, Jeffrey could be put on dysphagia diet and had be, uh, be featured a thickened liquid diet. Yeah, with these swallow things, when I do on bedside, if I get any kind of a cough, I'm usually making it at a negative. I would probably, to be honest, I try like two or three times. And if he coughs every time, I just don't want to aspirate. I just I just put it down as, as, as a fail. And, that, and then speech could come by if they say he's fine and he could have clear liquids. That, that's fine. You know, that's fine. I just want to be more, more cautious. And even though he's coughing, he could still have, he could still pass. It's sometimes they just haven't swallowed a long time. So it's a little bit harder for them. But when they do have a cough, it's actually a, a pretty good thing because they're able to, to protect their airway. So when they're coughing, it's not necessarily always a bad thing. It could be a good thing because they're able to prevent things from going into their, into their lungs. So even though they're coughing, they could, they could still be passing. But I just like to be cautious that even if they do cough, I want to make sure that it's not going to their lungs, so I just make it a fail. I just have swallow come come in and just handle the business. Even if they just say patient's completely fine, I'd rather have them say it's completely fine than, than have me dictate that it's completely right, fine. Because he could be at, uh, silently aspirating. Mm-hmm. You don't know that, and it kind of sounds cruel. Like we're just gonna leave the patient and peel till tomorrow. But having an aspiration risk, taking in fluids without you being there, and the patient drinking, thinking he's fine, and he's not realizing what's happening. 
that might delay his hospital stay. It might get worse. He might get pneumonia, might get mm. sick. He could be immunocompromised for all that we know. It could just really delay his hospital stay with everything happening. Yeah. And he's already bed rest, so he's already at high risk for pneumonia. He can't move. He's he's physically unable to because of his his uh, his stroke status. So it's like if he does get pneumonia, if he does aspirate, it's going to be a lot harder for him to recover because he's still recovering from that stroke. And then pneumonia is just going to take over because he's not moving anything. He's not. He's still not 100%. He still can't you know, breathe real, real deeply. You still can't cough real, real hard. So you just, like you said, pre- like preventing him from going home and you don't want to add another issue on top of like a major issue, like a stroke. So I know it sucks. He's going to be hungry. He's going to be thirsty, but it's better than him having pneumonia. Yep. Let's go into day three. So day three, during day, day three, Jeffrey's last day in the ICU, nurse Jessica performed her assessment. His vital signs remained stable, all within normal limits. His NIH drastically decreased to two from 13. That's that's amazing. And Jeffrey began showing signs of improvement in neurological status. The strength in his right arm and leg mar- remarka- remarkably improved. His drift in both extremities was absent. That's amazing. That's mm. basically what we want from a TPA therapy. Mm. Moving forward to day number four, Jeffrey was transferred to the med surge floor to continue progression. He continued to work with physical and occupational therapy and was able to perform most of his ADLs with little assistance. Jeffrey could also ambulate 20 feet down the hall with the use of a walker. And then moving forward, day number five, Jeffrey was ready for discharge with his pre-stroke activities. So it seems like he almost made a full recovery. It looks like he's probably need some rehab, going to most likely either have PT come to his home or he's going to go to a physical therapy center. But like Matt said, this is like a perfect situation. He came in for for a stroke and by day five, he's almost at his pre-stroke self, just a little, little bit weaker and in need of a walker. So it looks like he's going to have a, a you could almost say a perfect recovery. And this is what we ideally want to see. Of course, this isn't always the situation, uh, but this is nice to see when it happens, especially when you're working like three nights or three days in a row and you progressively see this patient improve and his you can see the looks you can see the faces of his family they're a lot happier they go from super scared on day number one to now he's getting transferred on day number three and he's getting better on day number five everyone just just uh just it just it just feels real good it feels like you're actually making a difference in people's lives and you're actually doing some kind of beneficial thing so a question for y'all what are some risk factors that contributed to to um, Jeffrey's stroke. Well, we know he had a history of hypertension. He had a history of hyperlipidemia. And we also know that he wasn't always so coherent on his on his medications. So him not taking his medications, that might have led to his to his stroke as well. He also has a history of smoking. You know, once you smoke, even even if you stop, you're still at, at a higher risk of, of having a stroke just because you he's been smoking for, for 20 years. Uh, so those are like the like the main ones. His father also died of of a related issue, and then his his mom has diabetes. So so it seems like he's got a quite a bit of comorbidities, and just his lifestyle choices in his in his younger years kind of um, led to this this kind of a, a stroke happening. Right, and ultimately, what helped him mostly with his recovery is that he was able to take and be taken to the hospital so quick. His wife picked up on the symptoms, brought him in, and he was able to get TPA administered in the window with his first initial symptoms. So what we talked about in the middle of this case study is what are the contraindications for not receiving TPA? And we're going to talk about the exclusion criteria here. 
normally this is something for a doctor, but it's really good to be aware of these exclusion criteria because it's something that you might be bringing up to the doctor before he notices these things. So one of them is minor or quickly improving stroke symptoms. That's more of the TIA route where he had facial droop, left side of weakness, and then it just resolved on its own. If the patient is pregnant, if there is a seizure at the onset with post-ictal residual neurological impairments, that could be maybe potentially a brain tumor or something else is happening. I don't know if meningitis is linked to seizures, but who knows with the, yeah, with that. Uh, any major serious trauma or serious surgeries 14 days prior to this event, any recent GI or urinary tract hemorrhages within the past 21 days, a recent MI within three months, a hemorrhagic stroke, because of course we don't give TPA because the patient would just bleed out, and other things as far as like a systolic above 185, so that would be in hypertension emergency, we'd have to give some medications to bring the BP down, uh, platelets less than 100,000, risk of bleeding, and current use of anticoagulants, and also hypoglycemia less than 50, because if they are hypoglycemic, they might mirror those symptoms of a stroke, and first we have to check the sugar and see if there's improvement in uh, Jeffrey's symptoms. Yeah, ATP, it, it's, a, or sorry, TPA, it's a very strong medication. So we want we want the patient to be as in a greatest like homeostasis level as possible, just because it's, it's a very dangerous medication. That's why he was sent to the ICU and has a high risk for bleeding. So we want to minimize anything that's going to, to increase like a little help likelihood of, of bleeding. That's why we focus on, on, on his past. Even though he had a surgery three weeks ago, you know, it's still, it's still healing. There, there's, there was still some incisions there. If you got like a bowel resection, remember there, there's incisions in your, in your bowel, it takes time to heal. That's why we don't want to disrupt anything because yeah, we understand that the brain is super important and you can't live without your brain versus like maybe getting a colostomy bag. But if we give you TPA and, and it prevents that or, or reduces that ischemic stroke, but on the flip side, it gives you like a giant GI bleed and now you're going septic, then we didn't really do anything of, of, of benefit because now instead of having a stroke, now you're just bleeding on your insides and then we're opening you up that way. And and if you're bleeding on your, on your insides and we just gave you a TPA, how are we gonna go in there and, and, and stop that bleeding? We can't because the medication is, is, is that strong that if you start bleeding from, from one area, it's going to bleed for a long time up until your kidneys are able to take that the medication. Now we can't like rush to dialysis to remove the the TP out of your system because that's not how it works. You have to just wait it out, and it's 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 rough. That's why you want to check all the bases because it sucks that you had a stroke, but we don't want to make anything worse by giving you this kind of medication. That's why it's called a clot buster, mm-hmm. and probably in your hospital you might require to two-person verification for administering TPA. So that's going to depend as well. But yeah, hope you guys enjoy these case studies. If you want a specific case study as far as a disease process, send us a DM or on IG or on email if that's what you prefer. And we'll keep rolling these out. And thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. Peace.